0: Welcome to this British Academy podcast on how to make the world add up. I'm Hitan Shah, Chief Executive of the British Academy, the UK's National Academy for the Humanities and Social Sciences. This event took place on 22nd September 2020, and I was delighted to be joined by the economist, journalist, broadcaster and author Tim Harford to discuss his latest book, How to Make the World Add Up, 10 Rules for Thinking Differently About Numbers. So, Tim. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Your book, How to Make the World Add Up, has just come out. So most of our viewers uh, or listeners have probably not yet read it. So can you just give us a short summary to start?
1: Sure, I mean, I think I think nobody's read it because at the moment it's it sold out in about 24 hours and we're desperately trying to get some more copies into the bookshop. So it's um, uh, people keep telling me this is a good problem to have. Um, so what what's the summary? This is a book about uh, how to think clearly about the world using numbers so a friend of mine said oh so it's a, it's a book about how to think about statistics no i i think statistics are an important tool but ultimately my aim is to help people understand the world around them and uh, that's what the book's about and it's 10 rules of thumb 10 habits of mind that i've learned while presenting more or less over the last um, 13 years and i think what makes it slightly different from a regular book about statistics is the really the lessons learned during for example the brexit referendum uh, where i realized oh um you know i can sort of go through the numbers we can go through the facts look at the evidence and actually a lot of people aren't really listening a lot of people are being influenced by what they believed all along they're influenced by by what their friends think they're influenced by their political identity their their cultural identity and that's that's fine of course We're, we're human beings we exist in the world we exist in society but it made me realize that if i'm going to write a book to help people think more clearly about the world i also need to help them think more clearly about themselves it's not just about technical advice about statistics. It's also how to get through your own filters and biases and think calmly, uh, in, in, to put yourself in a position where the evidence can actually change your mind, which is not a totally straightforward thing. Great. Well, some of our viewers and listeners will have come across the book, How to
0: Lie with Statistics, which is a classic by Daryl Huff. I remember reading it when I was a teenager, and mm. in some ways, uh, I mean, you refer to the book in your introduction. It feels like you're positing your book as a bit of a kind of antidote to his. So can you say a bit more about the Daryl Huff book and
1: how it relates to your own? Yeah, you would think, well, why does anybody need to write an antidote to Daryl Huff's book? Because I read it as a teenager. Uh, it's a great book. Great little book. Um, it's funny. It's it's sharp. It's incisive. And it's a guide to all the ways in which statistics can can lead you astray. Uh, can be deliberately used to deceive. But what I started to realize was making me uncomfortable about Darrell Huff's book was it, it sort of sets a trap for all of us who, who believe in numbers, who are numerate, who believe in the power of statistics. It's very easy to think that we're communicating about statistics, whereas, in fact, what we're doing is debunking false statistics. And in doing so we're leading people to be more cynical we're leading people to conclude that all anybody ever does is lie with statistics um and and that's dangerous because yes you i mean it's important to call out lies it's important to 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 do that but if that's all we do then we're just feeding into a real cynicism and i think daryl huff understood the the power of his kind of quite witty skepticism very well and he wasn't the only one who did so he was hired by the the tobacco companies in order to to spread disinformation, i would guess about tobacco so he worked on a book paid for by the tobacco lobby called how to lie with smoking statistics which was uh i think you know mercifully for his reputation was never published and there's a famous story how to lie with statistics about um, how you can show that um, storks statistically speaking storks deliver babies because there's a correlation between storks and babies and um, uh, you know you would think well that's that's a that's a fun joke that's that's a great illustration of uh, of the limitations of statistics of the, the the pitfalls of mistaking correlation for causation but Darrell huff actually went to the u.s senate and testified that they shouldn't be putting health warnings on packets of cigarettes by telling the story about storks and and babies and why there's a correlation between storks and babies. And and it's pretty much the same as the connection between cigarettes and cancer. So that that cynicism took him to a very dark place. And it is ironic that the, the same year that How to Lie with Statistics was published 1954 was also um, the year that one of Richard Doll and Austin Bradford Hill's groundbreaking uh, studies was published. You know, some of the first convincing evidence that smoking cigarettes will greatly increase your risk of of lung cancer. So I really wanted to to set these two visions of statistics next to each other and to say, look, here's a guy who tells you it's a trick, and who wrote the most popular book ever written about statistics. And here it is not a trick; it's a tool for seeing what's true, and um, they perceived something true and very important about the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really powerful set of contrasts that you give, and the whole book is about. Uh, I think you talk about using uh, numbers as a telescope to open up the world, which I think is uh, really wonderful. So the, the the book aims to teach us some um, ten rules plus a golden rule for thinking differently about numbers. Uh, I don't want you to list all the the rules. Your publisher won't forgive me for that. But c- can you just say a bit more about how you came up with the rules and what you know what lies behind that?
1: Yes, I mean I, I'm not going to pretend that there was a, a tremendously sophisticated process of figuring out what the ten most important rules were. Um, it was more a case of thinking about what I felt it was important to talk about and and what rules of thumb suggested themselves. Uh, but there are there are several rules about our own emotional reactions to statistics and our own biases so they're really rules that show an awareness awareness of human psychology i think there are uh, rules that i think are just simple practical tips for putting numbers in context and make helping them make sense really just straightforward down-to-earth common sense questions to ask when you see a number and then there are uh, there are two or three rules that are about particular cases. For example, um, discussing uh, data visualization, or discussing algorithms and big data, and what we as individuals can can do to make sense of algorithms, and what we should be demanding of uh, of our governments, what we should be demanding of large organisations that use them. So I'm happy to, to talk a bit more about any of those. But that's a basic guide. There are there are rules about the technical details there are rules about this wide world of statistics and data and how it's used and then there are there are rules about um about our own own sort of biases and filters
0: so i'm just picking one of the rules at random uh you say ask who is missing can you say a bit more about that
1: oh yeah so um i think many many uh people watching this will be aware of Caroline Criado Perez's excellent book Invisible Women which really starts with the observation that in a lot of in a lot of writing and a lot of thinking there's long been a default assumption that we're talking about men um, and the default he in language rather than she and Perez argues that the same thing is happening quite often in the way we conduct experiments in the way we test uh, algorithms, in the questions we ask in our surveys. Uh, there's a there's a systematic, unquestioned assumption that we're talking about men and, and women are an afterthought. Um, so I wanted to, to start with that idea and to look at the you know all the studies that are done where there's no disaggregation of data between men and women. Uh, I mean, and recently, for example, with the coronavirus. It turns out there's quite a big difference in risk between men and women, but it's quite hard to see that or to analyse it because very often the data are not disaggregated by by gender. So we, you know, we don't know who died of the coronavirus, whether it was a man or a woman. And um, so we're starting with that, but then saying, well, actually, what other questions can we ask uh, about uh, who is missing um, or about what is missing? So I, I uh, give the example um, Will Moy from Full Fact points out that we we know more about golf than we do about sexual assault in the UK. And the reason is because the survey designed to ask questions about sporting activity is bigger and better than the survey used to ask questions about uh, being a victim of crime. And that's not because anybody in the government ever thought, oh, um, it's it's just more important to understand sport than it is to understand crime. It's because the Crime survey was commissioned by one department and they, they go ahead and they behave in one way and they can, they've got a certain budget. And then when the Olympics came along, sporting participation was a big question. So, so we commissioned this huge survey of sporting participation. Uh, and there's no conspiracy there, it's just slightly weird and slight lack of joined up thinking. So that's an, another example of uh, questions that we could be asking or questions that we could be asking in more detail or putting more resources into asking that we that we don't bother to ask uh, i quote anna powell smith who has points out that the the power of governments to choose not to collect data about something is uh is is extreme it's extremely powerful and it's underappreciated just how much that can go on
0: yes and i know uh she's currently working to see if we can develop mechanisms in legislation to ensure that better data is collected on a whole series of areas. So uh, that's clearly a message that's starting to get through one of the really nice things uh, in your book. And I mean, this is something you do uh, really well on more or less. And as a journalist is tell stories about data Uh, and. uh, one of the things that you use in your book is a kind of sense of some heroes of uh, number use and statistics and some villains. so can you tell us a couple of stories?
1: Sure so you, you already heard the story of Daryl Huff, but uh, the story that opens chapter one is is all about an art forger uh, and an art critic and how the, um, the art critic, a, a gentleman called Abraham Bradius one of the, you know, the great um connoisseurs of Dutch art the late 19th early 20th century is taken in by a really crude forgery by a just a reprehensible man um who I don't want to spoil all the details of the twists and turns of the story because it goes to some really weird places um but he's fooled by by a crude forgery and he's fooled by a crude crude forgery because the crude forgery tells Abraham Bradius, this art critic, tells him something that he believed all along. It, it provides a sort of missing piece for a, a pet theory that he'd always had about Johannes Vermeer, the great Dutch interiors being. And so in this picture, he was basically being shown proof that he'd been right all his life, uh, which is a tremendously powerful thing to be um so that's that's a story that i i tell quite a book because i think you remind people that technical expertise isn't enough expert and you can still basically be fooling yourself um so that's one story uh, one of my statistical heroes is Florence uh is uh, is in chapter nine of Talk about her really walking this fine line between the um, you know, the challenge of of collecting really rigorous data really makes sense with the same um, the challenge of trying to communicate and persuade and her data visualizations which have seen in the library. I know you know the raw statistics very well. He mm-hmm. um, these these data visualizations were just fantastic in this balance between telling the truth and at the same time trying to persuade people of something tremendously important.
0: Just going back to the first example you gave uh, of the forgery, I I mean there's nothing I like more than being proven I was right all along. Uh, uh, and it's definitely a sense of satisfaction that I get. Uh, as you say, sometimes we seek it out even when we're not right to do so. Uh, I mean, we're seeing discussions about a polarised society and people, uh, in a sense, kind of just taking in the information that supports their views on all sorts of issues, be that climate change or Black Lives Matters or whatever else. Uh, how How are you seeing that playing out at the moment? How far is this issue of... Us taking the evidence that uh, and cherry picking it to support our own views. How do you see that? How far do you see that as a kind of big societal issue? Uh, and what does the evidence tell us about how we can do something about it?
1: I think it's a huge issue. Um, we we're highest on on certain questions, and it's been quite striking the case of coronavirus to see how what starts as as a an existential threat body quickly becomes you know you've got the you've got the COVID deniers and you've got the the coerics and you've got the you know the people who think everyone should wear a mask everywhere and the people who think nobody should ever wear a mask and and um, it's astonishing to see how quickly people retreat from uh, evidence and just polarize into into tribes something that affects everybody it's not something that affects every issue. Uh, one of the things I think we need to do is to try to avoid uh, as much as possible questions of evidence getting dragged into political debates. but it's very unhelpful when it happens and the academics that I interview for the book is um, uh, a guy called Dan Kahan at Yale University and uh, Dan's, 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 Dan studies this he calls it cultural cognition it's very striking to see you've got for example um, certain things that have been dragged into the political process and you now have like these are democrat vaccines republicans don't have them and then other vaccines that basically you would say well the scientific evidence is the same it's it's all the same sort of thing Um, you just see if your doctor tells you to get the vaccine and with whether political entrepreneurs have seen this as an opportunity to make political capital or not, so it's a huge problem. One of the uh, the sort of the, the ways that we might be able to push this is um, well, I argue it's just a sense of curiosity. So Dan Kahan's research suggests that once people actually get interested, once they get curious once they start, the world is full of puzzles to be solved or wondered, that's a great antidote to political polarisation. The kind of data that comes in that you might go, well, that's surprising and I, I can't believe it. I don't believe it. I find it threatening. Instead, you see that and you go, oh, uh, that's, that's a surprise. That's interesting. Tell me more. I want to know more about what's going on.
0: I wonder whether, in a sense, those of us that are most politically interested or active, uh, in some ways, are the least curious. Uh, I wonder because you know we already have preformed views on uh, on our, and that's what the na- uh, notion of ideology is. After all, it's a kind of uh, shorthand way of looking at the world without needing the evidence. Uh,
1: yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, I suppose, but you. You see this in the um the platform of the Republican Party in the presidential election, which was, as I understand, basically our platform is to support Donald Trump. Uh and we don't need, we don't want any details. We don't, don't need any details. Um you know we know whose side we're on. And while that I think it, it it's a little extreme to see it stated so boldly, uh there's lots of evidence to show that um people will support policy platforms on the basis of who they're told which you know whether they think their party proposed it or not uh and if i if i put a policy proposal in front of somebody and i say uh oh this this came from the labor party um labor supporters will go yeah well that's of course that's very sensible if i tell them it's from the conservative party the same people the same policy will completely reject it and vice versa um so yeah to to some extent it's a cognitive shortcut you know what do people like me think uh i think that's one reason why masks have become so divisive because they're so visible uh it's very very easy to make a mask a sort of political statement because everyone can see it and i don't think it's become especially political in the uk very clearly opinion is divided in the uk but it's highly political in the us and it is partly that you start, if, you know, if you're a Democrat, you start wearing the mask as a badge of pride. I'm a right-thinking person who wears a mask. And at that point, it becomes kind of a, an act of cowardice or surrender for a Republican to wear a mask. Once people start feeling this way, it's very, very hard to, to have a sensible discussion about anything. Um, I, I would emphasize this is not true for every issue. It's not inevitable that things get polarized. Um, but it's always a risk if they get and once they get polarized it becomes very hard to have a sensible discussion
0: yeah that's really interesting and th- there are some issues where you can almost see uh, politicians are trying to move out of polarization so for, for example social care where there hasn't really been a cross-party consensus and uh, you know uh, i think when Labour put forward some ideas uh, that the Tories talked about them in terms of death taxes and so on, so make it quite polarised. But uh, now there is a growing sense that uh, we need to come together and look at the evidence and take some of the heat out of the conversation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right
0: numbers obviously being bandied around all the time uh, on the media and so on uh, and that's one of the reasons I think people will turn to your book but obviously more recently we've seen the rise of social media uh, what, what what are your reflections on how numbers are treated on social media and how, how that either helps or hinders uh, the ordinary consumer of numbers to make sense of the world
1: I think if we're if we're motivated if we want to find out what's going on uh, social media can be very helpful. I mean, I think about the fact that um, it's just a whole bunch of epidemiologists on Twitter that I never knew existed, that I can now follow and get really sensible, detailed explanations of the latest news, very, very timely, um, links to recent papers, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Um, and I think that the same is true of the internet more generally never been easier for someone who wants to know the answer to the to a question but but doesn't really you know do, doesn't know much to with a couple of google searches to find credible sources uh with with sort of good um good claims to authority who is supplying their references being very clear about their reasoning very 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 easy to to get a, a really expert and excellent explanation of almost any issue you like so that's the, that's the good news the bad news of course is most of us don't do that uh, most of us in general use the power of the internet to read exactly the kind of thing we want to read so we you know we filter out unwelcome information I, either the algorithm does it this is the Eli Pariser's idea of the, the filter bubble or I think more a more powerful influence is well we do it by deciding who to follow what to read what to pay attention to so we're we're filtering out unwelcome views we're focusing on people who agree with us and that's a problem already but then on top of that is the social media's um a gift for emphasizing powerful emotion so uh, laughter and joy yeah and the, you know the, all those cat videos and the you know genuinely inspirational stuff that goes around that's it's great um I mean, it's not doesn't really help you think clearly about the world but there's nothing wrong with with the sharing a bit of joy um but very often also anger scorn division um nasty emotions they come out very quickly and they they tend to be rewarded sometimes by the algorithm mostly i think just by just by you and me um retweeting things sharing things that make us feel uh, you know I'm very passionate in opposition or very passionate in support. And you just think about people who who are very widely followed on Twitter. Um, they tend to be the kind of people who provoke strong reactions. And strong reactions are really the path to insight and clarity. Even though they can be they can be the path to all kinds of good things, they can be the path to to change, they can be the path to action. But they're not generally the path to insight. You just notice how, whenever something comes up that provokes scorn or anger, how much attention it gets, observation that's a little bit centrist and perfectly kind of straightforward, it doesn't tend to get a lot of attention. Now, I think that's a big problem. And I don't know, systemically, I don't really know what to do about that. But for each individual, I think the prescription is perfectly straightforward it's my advice in chapter 1 rule 1 which is before you're you're sharing anything before you're retweeting um liking etc just ask yourself how am i feeling how is this claim how is this tweet this post this newspaper headline how is it making me feel so i don't if i notice how it's making me feel i'm immediately in a little bit more control of my emotions and I think more likely to, uh, to think clearly about what's being said.
0: So perhaps we need more statistical cat videos uh, on YouTube and Twitter to, to, to generate uh, you know, that, the Venn diagram of people interested in numbers and people interested in cat videos. Uh, uh, yeah,
1: well, I mean, there's certainly no, there's nothing wrong with a bit of um, a bit of positivity and spreading a bit of cheer. Um, I think certainly um, things like humour are can can be useful and you know heroes and villains can be useful um personal stories characters the idea of a narrative arc it's not a coincidence that my book is full of stories and it's full of people even though in principle it's a book advocating the use of statistics to think more clearly about the world well why are there so many why are there so many people in it it's because people are interesting and as Orson awesome well says i quote him towards the end of the book uh, an audience will understand anything if they're interested the, the challenge is to interest them so that's one thing we should be doing more on social media more uh, you know more interesting characters more interesting stories gets people involved and and digging deeper and then you can start introducing the data the evidence and so on and uh, as for as for humor i suppose the cat video example cat video um, parallel that i come closest to describing in the book is stephen colbert uh in character as a as a sort of right wing political um tv presenter really taking his audience incredibly deep into the world of campaign finance in the us by setting himself up as someone who like oh i want to run for president i want to raise as much money as possible with no strings no consequences uh, nothing tied back to me, and I want to be able to spend it on whatever I want, tax-free. Can you help me? And so he's getting these these experts to explain to him how he's going to rip off his donors, how he's going to dodge through all the campaign finance rules, how he's going to avoid paying tax, all of this stuff. And people watched it because it was funny and because they they were sticking with the character of of Colbert. But this has been studied at the end of that whole run, this running gag that went over several weeks people really understood campaign finance they really understood how it worked they really understood the problems in a way we, in which I think a more worthy treatment you might have you know read a long piece in the in the New York Times for example would just I mean, far fewer people would have read it but even those who read it I think fewer people remember them. there's a place for statistical cat videos I think I think that's right <laughs> Let
0: me just remind our viewers that now's a good time to send in your questions. We'll be opening up to Q&A shortly. Um, Tim, you, you managed to revise the book. Uh, I mean, it had mostly been written, but uh, COVID just broke at the start of this year. So into, in your introduction and uh, throughout the book, you have made some references to COVID. Can you say a bit about how you felt You know, data and numbers have been used uh, during the pandemic and how that relates back to your golden rules?
1: Yeah. So, the, I mean, the first thing to say is the overarching thesis of the book is that the numbers matter. They, they're life or death. They show us things we can't see in any other way. They're not just about winning political arguments. They're not just about tricking people or selling toothpaste. And um, I mean, un- unfortunately, the coronavirus proved me right about that. I mean, it provided the perfect example, sadly, that that's true. and so interesting just to see the scramble to understand this virus where is it how many people has it infected how infectious is it who's most at risk is it is it everybody is it is it just the elderly how dangerous is it how many people have died as a percentage of the people who've been infected when we don't know how many people have been infected and so on and so on I mean, these are absolutely crucial questions um and we saw uh politicians and their scientific advisors really scrambling to produce really consequential policy decisions in a very difficult situation because we just didn't have enough data to really be sure of the right thing to do. Um, And whatever course we took, we were taking a massive risk. So I think that really underlined the, the overall point that I was making. And the fact related the fact that we tend to take statistics for granted. We tend to think of them as something that, oh, they just did some spreadsheet somewhere. And you just go to the right website, and you download them, and then you've got the statistics. But they, they always come from somewhere. Somebody has produced these statistics. Maybe they made them up, or maybe they've done the most incredibly arduous, difficult, expensive, painstaking work. Uh, So let's not take them for granted because we see what happens when they're not there, when the statistics aren't available. Uh, We see the consequences, having to make decisions, really life or death consequential decisions in the dark. So that I think is the overall message I I would try and leave people with. There have been several other examples. For example, we talked about the sex disaggregation of COVID data, the fact that many places are not, splitting out men and women and so we're there's vital information there that we could have we could be analyzing um or um another example is the power of wishful thinking i talked about abraham bradius and um the the art critic and the way he was fooled by really unconvincing forgery because he fooled himself he convinced himself i i see the a lot of wishful thinking going around throughout the the virus from from april onwards where you see people making arguments that it's, it's basically not really a problem. It's not really a difficult decision to be made. If we just all ignored it, it would basically go away. Um, and all of the different hoops that you see people jumping through, whether it's, well, it's false positives or oh, the virus is getting weaker or, um, everyone's actually had it already, or, uh, oh, it's a, herd immunity is just around the corner or, uh, all those people didn't die of COVID, they died with COVID, it's on and on and on. Um, and most of these objections are, I think, on the face of it, plausible, they're worth taking seriously, they're worth working through the numbers. But when you see certain people producing one of these logical loops after another, and the evidence keeps coming in to to say, sadly, I'm afraid that's not really what's happening, then you, you're seeing wishful thinking in action, I'm afraid.
0: Uh, and I suppose, in that environment, as you know, one of my long standing views has been it's unfair to place the burden on us as individuals to work out which number is trustworthy or not uh you know for for me to have to work out every number is a kind of unbearable burden to place upon me, so There's got to be a set of wider institutions in society that we can rely on, uh, be that the media, be that, uh, you know, political institutions and government statistics and so on, be that fact checkers. Uh, uh, So can you say a bit about what you see as the the role of these institutions in the UK and how strong our ecosystem? uh, I mean, I think sometimes you use the term statistical bedrock, uh, how strong that is.
1: I think it's a mixed picture. Um, so the very fact that so much news now goes through social media um, and that it's it's very hard to see what people are actually reading, what advertisements they're seeing, very little transparency. That creates, I think, a, a situation of, of great risk. Um, there's a lot of good news as well, though. So I, I think, for example, um, many journalists are more aware of statistical questions uh i think um martha carney on the today program said not long ago that every time she hears a statistic she he- she imagines my voice sort of whispering in her ear there's sort of become the, the guilty conscience of the today program like, what what would half i'd make of this uh if we got it wrong so there's and, and it's and it's not just more or less of course there are Uh, BBC has reality check, there's Channel 4's fact check, there are independent fact-checking organisations such as Full Fact, Um, so there's there's an increasing awareness that you can get the data right or you can get it wrong, you can make statistical mistakes or you can can derive great insights from statistics, there's a lot of that. Um, There's the Office for National Statistics which I think is not a perfect institution by any means. Um, I think you and I, Heaton, have often commiserated with each other over the the quality of the Office for National Statistics website, although it's getting better, it's getting better. Um, but I think it's, it's in a much stronger position than it was, say, in the 1980s, where official statistics in the UK were basically regarded as the property of government created by government for government and not really to be shared with the people, sort of like a management information system. So... know we can publish them if we want but who cares you know they're actually for us to run the country um that was that was the view in the 1980s the Derek rayner's review of official statistics in the uk and we've turned our back on that i think rightly and embraced the idea that statistics do help governments make better decisions but they're not just for governments they are for everybody they're the property of, of anyone in the world but in particular any resident of a country should have access to statistics to to help them understand the world around them to help them hold their representatives to account And i think the ons is doing a, a good job of of living up to those standards uh, it's particularly striking how quickly they moved i think during the pandemic so you've got you've got the coronavirus um uh pr- the prevalence tracker effectively a a, a proper rigorously done Representative survey of the population done every week with results published every week, really give you a sense of how many people have the virus. Uh, that's incredibly valuable at a time when uh, accounts right now are a hot mess because you know they're they're the output of the testing system and what's going on with the testing system. So, you know, there's a there's a lot to admire. There are a lot of improvements. Um, the Royal Statistical Society, which obviously you spent many years in charge of, Heaton has done great work. So lots of work still to do, uh, but lots to, lots to appreciate as well. And while my book very much emphasizes what can individuals do, what can, what can you or I do to inform ourselves, you're absolutely right that there are features of the statistical environment that make our lives much more difficult or much easier.
0: Yeah, good, I can see questions coming in uh, from our viewers uh, and please do keep them coming in. I've got a last question for you, Tim, which is uh, your your golden rule at the end, you've already mentioned, is be curious. Uh, and you've t- told us a bit about why you think that's so important. Can you uh, give us a few tips on how we could improve our curiosity?
1: Oh gosh, well, uh, I mean, I, I I think when you start asking more questions about what's going on and you the it curiosity is a sort of self-feeding thing where once you start going well what what's really going on there and um, I wonder how that compares to other countries or I wonder how that compare I wonder how you know, how they calculate that number it's a very interesting number how do they even know uh, you start asking questions and, and good questions and the 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 questions are are motivation themselves the answers are often fascinating and i mean the more you the more you know the more you want to know i think because the world's a very complicated place and so knowing a little bit about how it works just makes you more aware of how much you don't know so I, i i try to emphasize the curious habit of mind i think it's very powerful um and just asking yourself, whenever you see any kind of number, to say, well, um, how does this help me understand what's going on, what is going on, rather than, uh, does this prove me right or wrong? Can I use this number as a weapon? Uh, Is this something I can can wield in an argument? Uh, I think the curious habit of mind is, I think, ultimately a lot more fulfilling, uh, even though it may not play quite so well on Twitter.
0: Very good let's turn to some questions from our uh, online audience that uh, there's several coming in uh, many of them are kind of, I think in the either the political sphere or misuse of statistics uh, I encourage others to send your uh, questions in. We've got a few minutes now so first question I think is um, if there were any examples of egregious abuse or misuse of statistics that didn't make it into the book but stuck with you so
1: uh well there's no there's no shortage of of um people misusing statistics i guess the most obvious one to me at the moment is um yeah you know, just the various implausible things that people say about the virus that I'm, most of that's not in the book because i i had to stop writing in uh the beginning of may um so one of the things we did on more or less was just to uh, try to hold the government to account or the claims it kept making about the functioning of the testing system. And they they kept producing these targets, which were rather arbitrary, and then rather magically hitting the targets. And then again and again, you just seem to find, well, hang on, you've you've only hit the target by just redefining what the target is uh, without telling anybody that you've redefined the target. Uh, For example, are we gonna do 100,000 tests a day um but our definition of doing a test is putting a box into the mail we don't check whether it arrived we don't check whether the test was conducted we don't check whether we received the test back again we don't know what the result was but nevertheless we are going to count that as a test completed i think most people would say that's not a test completed um and, th- and this matters because. Um, I think they, they missed their testing target by 30,000 tests, something like that. Um, but they just defined themselves into having hit it. Um, the, I mean, this is partly just frustrating because we're not getting the straight story about what's happening. We're not being able to hold government to account in the way that we should. It's partly frustrating because it just reinforces this you know, infuriating idea that you can't believe anything. All statistics are lies. You know, every time a politician lies with statistics, they are feeding into that idea that that's what you do with statistics. Um, But the other problem is that the these targets potentially start distorting behavior of the political system. I think in the case of the testing target, probably was no big deal. But the uh, the idea that we were going to save the NHS rather than save lives very quickly migrated into a lack of focus on care homes and possibly even discharging people with covid from hospitals into care homes so that the hospitals were free and then just a major vector for infecting care homes more recently um contact tracing matt hancock has been saying contact tracing is doing well um but he started redefining his terms so he now measures contact tracing uh, of people uh, as a percentage of the people who supplied their details. So if lots of people don't trust the government enough to supply contact details, and why would they trust the government given that government is threatening them with fines and prominent government advisors have violated the rules? Um, if People don't trust the government, they don't supply their contact details. That make the virus is gonna spread um but matt hancock's target is going to show that everything's basically fine because by de- by definition we've defined that as not a problem and the issue there is when you start going okay well we need to figure out how to make sure that um, more people give their contact details or in the case of postal tests we need to figure out how to help people do postal tests and how to help people return their postal tests um, once those things are actually defined out of the system then they're no longer a problem for the system. And so they get less attention, even though actually, as far as controlling the virus is concerned, they're, they're absolutely central.
0: It's striking looking at the questions that are coming in. There's, there's uh, several around politicians and their use of statistics, which is what we're just talking about. I wonder if you might say a bit more. I mean, people are asking uh you know is the situation worse than it has been in the way that politicians misuse statistics uh and people are also asking how do they get away with it now i might also flip it around uh a bit you know it, with with the theme of your book, book being more about positivity uh how come statist- uh, politicians who use statistics well don't necessarily see a reward for that how, how can we encourage that
1: Yeah, it's a a really good question. Um, So, I mean, is it worse than it used to be? Maybe. I think possibly this is something to do with just modern media and and social media. I'm not absolutely sure. But I think I see more examples of politicians deliberately lying in the hope of being accused of lying because that whole argument is then a distraction from something else. Um, I think I see more of that. It used to be that politicians used to lie with statistics in a very subtle way and hope that nobody noticed. Uh, but now, I mean, you think about the, um, uh, the, the 350 million on the side of the bus. I mean, you know, Brexit's happened. That's all in the past. Um, everybody knows that that wasn't true. What was interesting was it, the fact that it wasn't true allowed the question of how much money do we give to the EU to be the central question of the campaign. And all of the other issues that we now realise are kind of important, like, you know, the Irish border, uh, that, that sort of thing, it, you know, in or out of the customs union, in or out of the single market. This important stuff didn't really get discussed because we were too busy arguing about whether that number was 350 million or 200 million. So I, I don't know what was going on in the minds of the Leave campaigners, but I suspect that was deliberate. They wanted to be accused of lying. Um, and that's why they kept doing it. And they're not the only people to have done that. So that's a, that seems to be a new strategy, and maybe it's a strategy uh, designed to maximise attention in, um, in a social media age. Uh, so why don't politicians get more credit for using statistics in a responsible way? Um, I don't. I don't know. One, one encouraging development that now seems a long time ago was the emergence of the idea of using randomized trials in policy. So This is most famously in the, the Nudge Unit, David Cameron's Nudge Unit. But actually, the, the it was more formally called the Behavioural Insight Team. Um, the Nudge Unit actually, for all the branding about nudges, it wasn't really about nudges. It was about um, trying stuff out, running small pilots, running little experiments, and seeing what worked and what didn't. And that got a lot of positive press, um, I mean, maybe slightly too much, slightly credulous press sometimes, but uh, I think it was really good work, it was really useful work, and it did get credit. Uh, but, of course, David Cameron and nudges feels like an awful long time ago, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, although I'm pleased that uh, some of that continues and the Behavioural Insights team uh, is still very much there, I think,
1: but as you say, perhaps... Yeah, they, they still exist bit. and they, they've branched out internationally. You're absolutely right.
0: So uh, n- another question is, um, is the UK education system, uh, and then it's got a specific kind of bit to allowing specialisation in humanities from 16, a problem for producing a population in which all are reasonably numerate and understand the use and misuses of statistics? Uh, I mean, w- whether um, or not it's humanities specialisation, but I, what's your sense of whether we've got uh, a, you know a schooling system that? Uh, allows people to get comfortable with using data.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I'm no fan of that specialisation. My own A-levels were uh, French and English literature, maths and physics, so you can tell where I stood and I was going to stay on the fence. Um, and then my uh, my degree was then three completely different subjects was philosophy, politics and economics. Again, the classic fence-sitting you know, all those all those essays about Rousseau and all that engineering maths, trying to optimise problems in economics. So, yeah, I've got no time for specialising between arts and sciences at 16. I don't really understand why we tried to do it, but we do it. So what can we do that's more practical? Um, a couple of things. Uh, I, I think we should be trying to teach statistical thinking in lots of other subjects. Uh, a lot of people will say, "Oh, we should teach statistics instead of I don't know trigonometry." And maybe it's easy. It's easy to say. I certainly use a lot more statistics than I use trigonometry, and I see a lot more statistics in public life than I see trigonometry. But it's I mean, it's a very easy thing to say. Um, I, I wonder how that would work out for real. But I think there is a real opportunity to say, "Well, hang on, we can use statistical ideas in." All kinds of subjects. Uh, we, you know, the, the study of history, geography, political science, um, any any science with experiments. You need statistics to understand, to sort of a, collate the results and evaluate the results of the experiments. Um, particularly, a uh, subject such as psychology. I'm um, minded of Florence Nightingale, this statistical heroine. First female fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. She was out in her garden at the age of nine, drawing graphs of and tables of snails and insects and flowers, and just trying to understand the world around her by turning it into a, a, a statistical construct. So we could do a lot more of that. I think that's um, harder in some ways. It, it's asking more of teachers, and you know, goodness knows we ask enough of teachers already. Um, my My book is dedicated to teachers. Um, But I think there's there's promise there. There's promise for really showing people that statistics are, they're not just a trick, they're useful. You can use them in other contexts. And I'd like to see a a bit more of that. It's very easy for me to say, I'm a writer. You know, I'm not a teacher. I I don't design the curriculum, but I, I think that's worth exploring.
0: Yeah, and I think there's definitely opportunities in, uh, as you say, some subjects like geography and psychology and others where there's growing use of uh, large data sets, which uh, allows you to think about statistical ideas. Now, I've got a pair of questions, uh, which I think are, are slightly linked. One, one is, which of the traditional media do you find are generally trustworthy with their numerical reporting? You may have a bias in that, being an FT journalist and a BBC uh, presenter, but uh, interested in hearing that. And then second sort of question, which links a bit to it, is on the social media side. I mean, in a sense, the question is, are you optimistic or pessimistic over the long run? Are we just in a phase uh where there's misuse and over time we'll kind of find better ways and the system will sort of regularize itself or are we always going to be in this uh uh, slight cesspit of numbers that we're in
1: now that's not quite how the questioner asked it but uh (laughs) yeah um uh yeah it's been been a long day hasn't it okay um (laughs) so are we um are we doomed look uh radio was i think a very important medium in um the rise of the nazi party in in germany and goebbels was a master of the medium of radio and uh i think that was partly that it was new and people hadn't built up a immunity to certain kinds of communication uh and i don't think we would now say that there was something intrinsically wrong, or intrinsically deceptive, or intrinsically problematic about radio. I well, mean, obviously there were plenty of problematic radio programs, but I don't think we th- perceive there as being anything fundamentally wrong with the medium. Probably quite the reverse. I think it has a sense that some of our most you know, complex and or highbrow programs of radio and podcasts. Um, so I, that precedent gives me hope that we, whenever there's a a big change in media we get savvy we figure out um i think the basic question there is do we actually want to know the truth do we want to understand the world around us are we curious or would we actually prefer to be lied to all the time and i don't know the answer to that i i um I get out of usually I'm an optimist, but occasionally I get out of bed on the wrong side and I think we just want to be lied to. And um, I think if that's the truth, then I don't think there's any particular media system, media ecosystem that can save us. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why ultimately, for all, Hedon, I think you're correct to emphasize the importance of the ecosystem, fact checkers, uh, journalists, and so on. Um, I come back fundamentally to the consumer of information in the end it's up to us if we want to know the truth if we want to think clearly about the world um i I think the system will deliver and if we fundamentally don't i think the system won't
0: so we get the numbers we
1: deserve yeah i think that we get we get the numbers we deserve we get the media we deserve to 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 some extent um as for the New sources that I trust. Of course, I uh, trust the Financial Times. I, I work for the Financial Times, and, uh, and I, I think a lot of, BBC output is, uh, is good. Um, but I think that the, and you know certain journalists who are incredibly smart and careful, working for all sorts of different newspapers or, or outlets. Um, but I think that a general principle that's worth looking at is. Um, If the news is slower, uh, I think it's more likely to be right. It's more likely to emphasise what matters, like not just what happened in the last five minutes, but what's happened in the last month. Uh, It's more likely to have time to check. One of the advantages that more or less has as a weekly programme over, say, the Today programme is the Today programme, stuff's happening live on air all the time. Politicians can lie on air and Are you going to spot that they lied i mean it's just it's really hard to catch these things in real time so we can sit back phone an expert ponder we're all the time in the world so um i i would go for slower news sources i like i write for the ft magazine which is a weekly uh you know a weekly news source and i like that sort of pace of news uh so slow down calm down uh have a varied media diet. Try and read people you disagree with. Try and you know browse around and see what see what's going on. I find blogs very useful for that. Um, but ultimately, uh, if you know if you want high quality journalism, uh, you really need to look for somebody who is doing the things that I advocate in the book. So I'm arguing that people should be curious. I'm arguing that people should be calm that they should put things into context they should look for the look for the backstory how did how where did this number come from who produced it and how did they produce it and we don't as individuals always have time to do that but you can see on a social media post or a newspaper article or a TV news item you you can see if the journalist is doing that or if the journalist is just trying to give you a particular angle uh, or, or make you feel um, they angry or impassioned about something. And it comes down, to, comes down to that. Do I want to know what's going on? Am I curious about what's going on? If I am, I will be able to find people who are curious too, and I should be listening to them.
0: Well, Tim, that's a wonderful place for us to end our session today. And of course, the, the thing that we must all take away from this is that the person who can help us be curious is you uh, and your Uh, book is, uh, if not right now, soon to be available in all good bookshops because uh, it's currently sold out. Tim, thanks so much for your time. It's been a fantastic uh, discussion uh, about your uh, 10 rules and uh, how we can make ourselves more curious and statistical cat videos, which I hadn't expected to appear, but uh, is a fabulous idea. You, you, the viewers, uh, can find out more about Tim's latest book and his articles uh, on his website, uh, timharford.com. Uh, and you can tune in to further uh, British Academy content on, on our own website. Uh, we look forward to seeing you uh, at one of our future events. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your own podcast app by searching the British Academy. To find out more about the work the British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.